Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been impacted by and overcome personal adversities, including your host. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep and hopeful look into the experiences related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of personal struggle. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real areas of life that all of us face. You will hear wisdom from people who fought to persevere through pain, circumstances, and are doing the work to recover. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming back to the podcast this week. I am really excited about this conversation. I stumbled upon a podcast called The Stuck Stops Here because I saw it in um, some of the ACOA, which is Adult Children of Alcoholics, and codependency rooms. And I belong to several social media groups that I like to observe and sometimes interact with when it comes to people who are really doing the work to come out of family dynamics and be their best selves. So I kept seeing this podcast come up and I love to pursue any avenue of healing that there is. And once I started listening, I binged just about all of them. So that said, today's conversation is with, like I said, someone I found through the podcast. Her name is Tammy Atman. She clearly has done the deep and often excruciating work to analyze herself, her pathologies, her family history, her life, and to heal all of that. She's not a therapist, a clinician, or a life coach. She, like me, is simply someone who faced her life and found a way to transform her wounds into wisdom, and this has become her life work, which is the similar path as I have been on as well. As her webpage describes it, she describes her work as being how I broke the cycle of generational dysfunction one aha moment at a time. And I absolutely love that. So I will let her go ahead and share her personal journey and experience herself. With that said, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like you are one of my heroes in the work just from listening to you, how deep you have dove into it and then to open up and share with transparency, but as well as with respect, I just have, I just admire you so much. So I'm really honored that you would come on the podcast. Well, Annie, thank you. And uh, please allow me to say that I've looked over all your work and your websites and your pages. And, you know, um, we need more people like you who are, you know, passionate about healing and spreading that good word because people don't, there's not enough of us that wake up. And whether it's drug addiction or personality disorders, or um, like me, uh, bad behavior addictions. That's what I like to call it. I was addicted to bad behavior. Um, And with people like you, so putting yourself out there and doing it so well makes it easy to blaze the trail for somebody like me. So thank you. Well, thank you Uh, so much. uh, So my story, um, I consider my, you know, maybe my, I'm unique and maybe my experiences are unique, but the concept of generational dysfunction and toxic families is not unique. Right. And uh, when I hit rock bottom about six years ago, 
um, I decided, you know, at that point, I was like, I couldn't live as myself anymore. Um, I suffered from high-functioning anxiety, high-functioning depression. So when I say that, it means I went to my kids' soccer games and enjoyed watching them play and chatted with the other parents on the sidelines all as a nice cover for the pain and turmoil underneath. And I think there's a lot of us out there right. who are high-functioning uh, depression, high-functioning anxiety, high-function you know, behavior disorders. And I, when I say behavior disorder, uh, and I'm glad you told people I was not a licensed therapist or clinician, I describe it um, as uh, assuming that my warped perspective was always correct. And that was, to me, is a behavior disorder. Um, always living from the outside in. Oh, um, yes. Particularly in, in my, you know, career, um, I kept choosing professions and, and, and positions that uh, were very outside-based, um, burdens, demands. I always had to be on. And I hated it, but I didn't know I hated it. But because I always had to be on in terms of catering to my toxic parents and, you know, tiptoeing on broken glass. That's what I like to call it. Um, always making sure everything was safe and uh, I was not rocking the boat. It felt familiar. It was unhealthy. It was not right for me. It was toxic for me. But because it was familiar, I assumed it was normal. So, uh, so despite, you know, despite my ability to achieve, you know, external goals and go about my day and stay attuned to my daughters, um, I see myself as not so different from um, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, who were living their dream lives, and yet something else was wrong. We'll never know what it is. So that's the best uh, visible tangible example I can give people as to what it's like to have high-functioning anxiety and high-functioning depression. Uh, they were consumed by it. Um, I almost was and decided that I just was going to change instead of die. Uh, that was six years ago. And all I, every free moment I had after that point was research. Wow, Reading. yes, I love that. That's, that's when I wasn't, you know, with my family or working or, you know, uh, you know, be, you know, responding to my commitments and doing every free moment. Uh, I read probably 15 to 20 books. I watched, read hundreds of articles, hundreds of videos, and I started to journal because every person or leader that I read or mentor, every expert I read, it was all about writing, getting it out from the inside and getting it outside of you. And what happened was, as a natural part of journaling, a book evolved. I didn't say I was going to write a book on this. I was just journaling. Um, for You know, this went on for two or three years. And, on, you know, one day, um, out of the blue, the book wrote itself. And it was strictly an organic process that evolved from all my journaling. Uh, the book popped into my head 
in a matter of seconds after years of journaling. I said, what would it be like to write what I experienced and write from the first half of the book, write from the perspective I had then, and then write from the perspective of, you know, reparenting myself and what that was like in viewing the same situation two different ways because that's really what it's all about based on all the books I read is going back revisiting those experiences and then reframing them with new wisdom so that's how I wrote the book and um, I had a friend of mine uh, read the book and says you need to do a podcast <laughs> And she actually is a, is a full-time uh, lifelong musician as, you know, an you know, music engineer or sound engineer. So this is her passion is producing and managing and singing, you know, from a, you know, a, a production standpoint. So she got me going. She gave me the motivation and um, the synergies were there. And so uh, we've been doing the podcast for about six months. Uh, I published the book um, eight months ago, and here I am talking to uh, my friend Annie. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I see the name of your podcast come up over and over, and I'll see people say, post something on like Naranon or Alanon or um, psychology podcasts or I um, have a narcissistic mom or recovery pages about recovering from an abusive partner or a narcissistic partner or doing self-work. I mean, it just runs the gamut and people will always include your podcast as one of the top three or four. So I had to listen to it. And once I did, I was like, oh my goodness, we speak the same language and even have a real similar time frame as far as I'd heard you say that you had a career change that caused a collapse and Yep. I really love that career played into it because when I went through a time of collapse, it was, I was a mess at work as well. I was in a um, sales position with insurance and then every relationship, but mostly mine were friendships that were so sick and toxic. And I just was to the point where you're so weighed down with being um, high functioning mess that I was pretty much walking doubled over and anything could collapse me until I finally just couldn't take another step without stopping pausing, analyzing it all, taking my mind all the way back to birth and even beyond that into family structure and then forward and reframing it. And that's really the process, no matter what book type of therapy, recovery room you use, it's really an autopsy of who you are and what you come from. That is a great uh, word to use, autopsy. Uh, because I always talk about coming back, you know, you know, bringing myself back to life, coming back from the dead. So I love that you use that. And I might steal it, but I'll give you credit. <laughs> it's a living one, though. You have to feel it. That's right. <laughs> I have a friend that says it's similar. Some days you feel like you're being skinned alive. It is because you, you, when you grieve you, the loss of somebody who has passed away that you care about, and that's very painful, it, you know, it doesn't get easier. Uh, but over time, it you know it gets you know better as you cope. Grieving the loss of a childhood you should have had and never did is um, the same as grieving the loss of somebody that you cared about that passed away. And it's interesting. I love the process of rep of reparenting. I have actually experienced that term 
in two ways. And one yeah. of them is reparenting your kind of broken self or dysfunctional self as a result of what you come from. But I also experienced reparenting when it came to my son. And there were several, several situations. And I was so thankful that I was um, hyper, uh, sometimes that hypersensitivity that you develop from coming from so much chaos is helpful. So I was hyper aware of my motives and how things would kind of play out. I noticed patterns. We would discuss conversations of how to deal with my son in certain situations, how to discipline him or what decisions to make. And I would always notice that his dad would come from a position of what he needed or didn't get. And I would come from a position of what I needed or didn't get. And we never really looked at where my son was at and needed. It was both coming from, I didn't want him to go through feeling lack and humiliation and chaos and ignored and like he didn't matter and having no confidence. And then my ex-husband would say, he needs, you know, harsher consequences and to be, you know, go out on his own and be alone. And we would always kind of butt heads. And I'm a big believer in consequences too, but he just had a different spin on it. And I remember one day saying, you're coming from the perspective of your childhood and I'm coming from the perspective of mine and neither of us are looking at his. And we started reparenting him. We had been reparenting him according to what had been missed about us. And it was really a process of mindfulness for us both to, in every conversation, say, okay, well, what does he need? Let's not look at our agenda. What does he need? And that, so that was part of, at least, I don't know for you, but that was a part of our healing process was to wake up to that as well. Absolutely. That's a fantastic uh, snippet that you just provided because it's spot on. And to take what you just said a little further, when we go to the eye doctor, and let's say you need glasses, you know how they spin those lenses? So is this good? Is that good? Is this good? Yeah. You know, so I look at it as, you know, which lenses are you wearing? You know, if you look through the lens of, of strictly your own pain, your own experiences, then it doesn't look right. Um, but if you, you know, as you choose to heal, become aware, and, and shed all those bad toxic patterns, then you put on a different lens. And you see things as they really are. Um, so, yeah. yeah so, what, what you've said is right on. Um, I started to heal, you know, when my oldest daughter was around five. Oh, that's good. So, um, but, you know, um, zero to five is important. So, she has some of my old, you know, worries and tension and anxiety and, and that. And, and I, you know, I totally blame myself for that. Uh, maybe she would have, you know, but it's not debilitating. We talk it through. And as she got older, I certainly changed, you know, myself and set a different example. And, you know, she definitely has uh, better coping skills at her age than I did. And I'm very happy about that. But I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, when my second daughter was born, I was much calmer and much, and you can see the reflection in their personalities. Um, you know, my husband always says, yeah, well, you can't, everything is not your fault. And I was like, that's, that is true. <laughs> All right. I'm listening, you know, so, um, but you know, so I, I own that, that, you know, I was, that I did pass some of that on. Um, she's leading a great life. It didn't work. You know, it didn't stop her from being who she was. Um, I just noticed a hyperreactivity, which plagued me for years, that she occasionally shows, and I, I was hyperreactive 24-7, even when I was sleeping, yeah. she just it shows up, you know, once in a while. 
but uh, I agree. We're looking at, you know, when you parent your children and, you know, tell, teach them how to survive in this world, it really should be based on, you know, who they are and what they're passionate about and not our pain. And that's where toxic family patterns that's the root of them is we're just always uh, looking to get our needs met. And, uh, you know, children don't ask to be brought in this world. So if you're bringing them in to heal something that, you know, your mom and your, you know, grandpa did, you're just passing the, you're just passing it on just like, you know, uh, a virus. That's right. Pun Pun intended. There were some times that I would say things to my son that were very specific encouragement and I would think I'm going to build his confidence up so high because I never had any. And I would yeah. say things that applied to him as an athlete and everything you do knocks it to, over the fence. And then he would always be like, thanks. And I would be, I would expect this great reaction <laughs> that he would like rise up like Superman, but it would kind of fall flat. Not that he didn't appreciate it, but it was, again, that was an example of I'm doing what I need, what I needed. And so that's, that's a great analogy. And it's the little things and they add up. It's those little things. So, you know, you're, um, you're spot on everything. Yeah. So I get it. I hear you. And I, uh, used to do the same thing and kudos to you for, for, you know, evolving from that because it is not easy. I like how you talk about how you were, everything was outside. And I think that that's until we realize we have to stop and look within, we are, a mess, whether it's looking for healing, validation, answers. I remember um, I've always kind of aligned myself with therapists, whether it was their books, sitting in the library and reading them or going to conferences or just I would accidentally become friends with them sometimes because I was always trying to heal. Like you, it was all about research and always trying to heal my way out. I had gone to see a therapist named Tammy Smith and she talked about how in her practice, everyone that came in was asking a question and she started noticing that in normal life. And sometimes the question is, am I cute? Am I accepted? Am I cool? Can I be invisible so you don't see me and I'm safe? Am I likable? And so that was um, so interesting. And I think we go on with our kind of madness or brokenness, the more we're reaching out for those answers. So I loved that you realized, you know, that was part of the problem. There's a, Uh, amazing video out there called the still face experiment. Are you familiar with it? No. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I have a link to it on my website and I do talk about it in a couple of my podcasts. So the still face experiment was conducted by I think a Harvard uh, psychiatric pediatrician. Um, I don't remember his name, but I believe it was Harvard. And he brought in a a mother and a toddler. You know, I think the toddler might've been, six months, eight months, eight, uh, he was sitting up. So, you know, maybe a year, 18 months, somewhere in that range, under two. And he was talking about, his point was driving home as to the kind of interaction and the kind of attunement that babies need in order to feel safe in this world and comfortable in their own skin. So he showed an experiment where the mother was interacting and cooing and responding and he was put, the you know, baby was pointing, she's pointing. And then he showed her with what's called a still face, not reacting or interested at all. And that baby was turning himself inside out, pleading to be noticed and engaged with. Wow. 
And it was heartbreaking to watch for two reasons. First, obviously, you don't want to see a kid struggling, begging for attention. Second is, I knew right away, that's exactly how it went down for me. I knew it. Absolutely knew it. I saw that still face, and I knew that that's how I, that, that blank, disinterested look. And I knew that was, that was the start of it, right then and there. And I think if a lot of people watch that, they'll find a way to say, oh, this is why, uh, part of why I feel so empty, unimportant, of low value and worthless. Because I was turning myself inside out, looking to be interacted with um, and nurtured, and I wasn't. Wow, chasing that warmth. Chasing, well said. And so chasing warmth, and, and that's why we grow up chasing happy. Yeah. Um, rather than cultivating it inside, we grow up chasing it because you watch that baby in the still face experiment and you'll learn why you've been chasing happy. I'll tell you, it creates patterns in you as well. I loved, I listened to a lot of podcasts and there's one, I think it was on Dr. Drew, where a woman who studies um, psychopaths talked about female sociopaths and psychopaths and how they come across as fake nurturers. And there had been a couple of patterns in my life where I, um, I didn't so much have problems with men, but because of the relationship with my mom, I would have patterned relationships with dysfunctional females. So best friendships that seemed nurturing, but they ended up being very sinister. And I was kind of um, used to be loyal with their enemies. And then they would have like a really sweet face that everyone believed. And I would end up taking the fall and getting burnt or believing they cared about me. And then they would stab me in the back back and betray me or even not that big. I would think they were, you know, nurturing. And I had this, you know, chasing that warmth. And then I would be let down and in just a normal letdown, I would be devastated. So these patterns definitely had to be reined in. And I mean, it's, it's, this stuff has such ripple effects when you come from madness and lack. That hundred percent true. You know, my, um, my mother and stepfather to this day, you know, still try to play manipulative and tricks and games, particularly the silent treatment. That's what they like. And I remember, you know, I used to turn myself inside out just like that little baby um, to, you know, appease them, make them feel better. And that, you know, that was my, that was my job um, since I can, for as long as I could remember. Now I, I just don't care. Um, because I can't, I can't fix it. I didn't cause their, you know, their terrible childhoods. It's not my fault and it's not my job to fix it as long as I do the right thing, which I do. Well, you're Um, to it too. And you've probably hit your threshold to where you've got some skin that's grown over the wounds. Absolutely true. And, 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 you know, I like the saying, never push a loyal pass a person past the point where they no longer give a shit. Am I allowed to say a bad word? <laughs> you sure are. Yeah. So, and that's what it is. Is if you, you've got somebody who's loyal to you, you know, a partner, colleague, child, sister, brother, friend, doesn't matter, you know, you making them prove to you over and over again that they care, um, you're just going to burn them out right. in some way, shape, or form. Uh, they're either going to collapse, leave, cry, turn to drugs, or, you know, or just not care anymore, you know, and that's, that's where I'm at. Well, um, it's with interesting my that you identified their tactic. Um, 
I like the term ACOA, which is adult child of an alcoholic addict or immature, um, emotionally immature parent. Um, yeah. And that doesn't, not everybody has to follow the same program, but I just kind of like some of that literature. But totally I agree with you. Yeah. I, my mother was a splitter. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Um, it goes along with personality disorders often, and it is somebody who divide, um, bonds by dividing. So if I were to have a really warm conversation with you, then I'm probably going to have a conversation with your daughter that portrays you in the worst possible light, and that's how I'll bond with her. It's almost like Oh, a I thought that, that's like the flying, you know, isn't that like flying monkeys? Yeah, know? pretty much. It's yeah, like a pyramid. Got it. Okay. Yes, um, I'm familiar um, with it. Yes. So, yes. So, yeah. I mean, and- you know, it comes from person. It comes from a need to feel safe, so that you know, basically. So I'm not judging her, and I certainly have done manipulative things myself. However, growing up with that, and I, you know, I was the youngest of six kids. Having people turned on you when you're the youngest, and everyone fights viciously. Oh, oh my God! And uses eternity in a religious manner to tell you you're going to hell if you disagree or they're mad at you. It was a lot of madness to work through. But once you start to identify the tactics and what's true and how to heal. I just love that you did that because that's such an important part of it. I, I can't imagine how challenging that was for you because you had like a, a, a team. This wasn't just one person. This was a team of, of, of people taking shots at you verbally and non-verbally, you know? Right. But wow. it makes you quick on your feet, though. So good, no, I, I think I, good I, comes I, from everything. So it, I wouldn't true. ever want to go through it again, but I wouldn't change that I did. It's, it's great that um, you're at that point. I'm now at that point. Uh, I will tell, I'll be very honest. In the middle, you know, the healing journey is not linear. In the early part of my healing journey, I was a little bitter for a while as to, oh, my God, I've been living the wrong way. I've been the wrong person. I've lived the wrong life. I've made the wrong choices. Knowing why was actually just as painful as hitting rock bottom. And that's where the healing journey can get challenging for people is is you reach a point where that kind of despair can be overwhelming and it's just not worth going through it. But I I persevered, um, as did people like you and other people you know, and other people. And that's why I, I started, wrote the book and did the podcast is if I could be the resource during those, you know, moments of despair and as well as, you know, create moments of clarity and aha moments in the middle of that despair. And that's fantastic. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Because it's not just a rebirth. It's like a a death and a rebirth, a death of Correct. who you are and everything you've known and everything you wanted. And then like you lose friends and connections and family, some return healthier, some never do, but every one of them is replaced with something better. Absolutely. You just got to stick it out, you know, you right. just got to stick it out. But yes, um, I agree with you. And, you know, um, it's incredible to talk to somebody who can uh, relate have you heard of, I just heard this on a podcast the other day. I think it was Tim Ferriss's podcast. There was a man on there. Oh, his name's like Jim Deathman or something like that. I'll have to look it up and put it in my notes. But um, they're, they're talking about the M. Scott Peck work. And there's something oh, yeah. called a pseudo community and the tunnel of chaos. Are you familiar with that? 
Ooh, no, tell me about it. So the pseudo community is the family that you come from, or it could be a friend network, a coworker network. It could be teachers yeah. at a school. It could be a church situation. And it's basically a community that doesn't have a lot of truth and depth. And when you go through the tunnel of chaos, it's kind of when you start confronting things that are shallow, dysfunctional, that need to heal, grow, be eliminated, whatever. And you typically go through that alone. And then when you come out of it, you've got a healthier community. But then it kind of like grows back over as the process goes. And you want to protect that new community. So you tend to like shrink back a little bit from the truth. However, it's never again as it was. For me personally, I kind of look at the truth like jumping headfirst into a pool. I don't like to just go in toe by toe and work my way in. I like it all at once. So I try to remain in a really blunt, awake, no escapism, dig deep truth daily as much as I can. But I know sometimes you get comfortable not telling that truth. And I definitely know family situations, even personal family members and friends that would prefer that pseudo community. It's more transactional. Right, externally based. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, you know, some of us are called to that tunnel of chaos and yeah. just kind of got to ride it through. Uh, and you're right on. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I want to try to say this, uh, you know, politely. It's sometimes it's hard for me to interact with my friends I've had for 20 or 30 years. Right. Because they don't really know that I've changed and I can sort of, I have a new lens as we talked about flipping at the eyeglass office. And it's, it's sad to see some of them so bitter and so limited. Um, and again, moments, it's not like that they're, I'm not saying that they're like that all the time. I just see that I've evolved and they haven't. And I'm not saying it from a, a judgment or superiority. I find it sad that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, that I can't connect with them, you know, sort of the yeah. way that I used to. Um, that's really what I'm trying to say. And I think that's part of that. You know, there's a loss there. And I think a lot of people, when you, I'm going to now use your tunnel of chaos, <laughs> it's definitely a big change as to, you know, what resonates with you and what doesn't after you've, you know, come through that tunnel of chaos. So I'm glad you brought that up because it definitely, clarif you know, clarified something in me as to why, you know, sometimes I, it's a little bit lonely sometimes right. um, being where I am, except when I'm talking to people like Annie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find that loneliness and that absence of chaos sometimes, that used to make me uncomfortable at first, but now I just sit in quiet or get into a book or a podcast. I put something healthy into the midst of that space, but I used to kind of wrestle with it. And sometimes yep. even think, oh, I should check back in on him or her. And then I would let my mind play out how that conversation would probably go. Absolutely. Yeah. I used to do the same thing. Now, nope, I lose myself in a podcast or book or music. <laughs> that's right. Um, so right on. And that's definitely healthier because we get, get, we get more nurturing, you know, self-nurturing out of that than trying to fix somebody that doesn't want to be fixed. Right. So I love this quote I read. I can't, I don't know that I'll get the woman's name pronounced correctly, but it's on your webpage and it says, yep. a healer is someone who seeks to be the light that she wishes she had in her darkest moments. And I believe it's by Veronica Tugaliva, possibly. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. She, had a, she wrote an amazing book, uh, The Art of Talking to Yourself. 
Ooh, uh, which I think you, after chatting with you, you're going to flip over. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's a fantastic book. I highly it's it's uh, I have a, a tab on my uh, website uh, that links to all the resources that I used and all the books that I've read. Oh, awesome. uh, and her book is one of them. I'll send that out definitely because that's part of it is is not just journaling and getting it out. Um, but the books and the materials you read and what you fill up with as you're going through that healing process is a huge part of it, in my opinion. What I always say uh, for me is I'm sharing how I've applied the information that I read and how I've applied it to my healing journey. I am not, I don't consider myself a healer. I consider myself more of a distributor and distiller. So this is what I've, this is what I happened. This is what I've read to heal. And this is how I'm going to present it to you in the hopes that, you know, you get uh, some aha moments and some clarity uh, for yourself. Right. Uh, that's really, uh, I like to try to keep it as that simple if I can. That's right. When I went through my um, collapse and kind of rebirth process, I sat down in the middle of um, a condo and just, I was working from home and analyzing, researching, and healing was my full-time job. And I read a book called In the Meantime by Ayanla Van Zandt. And we have a saying in recovery, take what you like and leave the rest. So there, you, you don't, I don't agree with maybe everything somebody says, but I agree with a big proportion of it. So that book, she talked about going back and analyzing, you know, what was going on when you were born, your birth pattern, things like that. And she had been born in the backseat of a taxi cab and was kept secret from her father's family because she was the product of an affair. So I stopped. That was the first time I ever stopped and thought, I am the youngest of six kids born into my parents' violent marriage. And then they wow. became kind of, my dad became a self-help guru and my mother sunk into trauma. When I was born, when she was eight months pregnant, they had had a house catch on fire and burn to the ground. So they moved all five kids, my pregnant mom, into her parents' house. There was a lot of hard feelings and conflict with her parents because of how my father had treated her. He'd been very abusive and violent, and he was getting sober and all of that. Her brother was living there who was in a band and studying at Ohio State University and was frequently experimenting with things like acid to kind of enhance all of that. So I didn't walk for the first year because they kept me in a playpen because there was just no room until they moved out. All of this, oh my God. all of this noise and chaos. And I never even stopped. I knew it, but I never even stopped to think that some of those patterns repeated over and over, over and over. And that was, you know, that's on a cellular level. It somatizes into who you are and how you are. And just going from there, you kind of start repeating patterns and swimming and what you're born into. I mean, it's, it seems like kind of crazy and out there, but if you analyze the patterns of your life, you walk to a cadence based on what you come from. I love that. Walk to a cadence through the tunnel of chaos. I think there's a song in that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. That is fantastic. I, uh, I so can relate. I hope Did you uh, ever analyze the circumstances of your birth within your family? What your mom's mental, emotional, physical condition was, the birth pattern, anything like that, because it really does kind of set the tone for what is to come. Fantastic question. Um, and I, as I detail this in my book, uh, the only reason why, you know, my parents um, conceived me was so that my dad did not have to go to the Vietnam War. Yep, that's common back then. I have a cousin who was rumored yeah. to have been born that way. 
Yeah. Um, so um, that's the only reason. Um, my mother uh, is deaf, um, and uh, so she was, I'm sure, but and married to um, my dad. Both of them were toxically immature and toxically self-centered, both of them. And they both had good reasons to be in terms of how they were raised. So the issue was I was born into a, a very unhappy marriage. Um, and I wasn't, they, they weren't, they didn't want me. They weren't like, oh, well, you have this wonderful life. Let's just have a kid. It wasn't like that. So, uh, you know, I would imagine, um, and also she, you know, was deaf. So I don't know how often that, you know, when I was crying in the middle of the night, I was actually, you know, catered to. Um, because my dad left, uh, they got within three years, they were, um, divorced. So, um, I'm sure, you know, I was one or two, he probably wasn't around very much. So, you know, the whole, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the term parentified child, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, I was, and, um, and it wasn't the fact, you know, there are a lot of, you know, people with physical challenges that had kids, you know, that, it wasn't just the physical challenge. Um, it was a number of other things in addition to that. Um, like I said, they were toxically self-centered, toxically immature. They got married uh, very young. Um, and uh, almost like there was, I would call it a high school romance that should have ended in high school. That's the best way I could have given it. And uh, so, you know, um, I had to be, very well behaved, um, and I had a long uh, to-do list from the day I was born. So, you know, my childhood was, you know, um, uh, and I talk about this in more detail um, in the book, but was taking care of her. Um, That's, you know, because she had uh, huge emotional needs and a huge uh, physical need, and, you know, I was her voice, and... You know, I remember being so young calling to make, you know, doctor's appointments for her. You know, like being on the phone to do something, you know, to help her out. Um, so Did that change when you entered your teen years or get worse or take a different path? So, uh, yes, it, it changed because, because she's a, uh, she has narcissistic personality disorder. She would vacillate between uh, engulfing me or ignoring me. So um, she was either, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of sense. Yeah, sucking me dry or indifferent. There was never any sense of, you know, space or normalcy or, you know, so uh, I either wanted her, you know, to get off my back um, or be like, well, how come you don't notice this? <laughs> like, you know, I got attention for all the wrong things, just like she did growing up. <laughs> So that's part of, you know, when you're uh, parentified, I became severely codependent. Yeah. Um, and it was that way and, and until, you know, a few years ago. Well, and it damages your reward system completely. I'm sorry? It damages. Yeah, exactly. So, right. Yep. Images the reward system. And oh my God, I'm adding that to tunnel of chaos and cadence. <laughs> I'm taking notes. Annie, I'm taking notes. <laughs> I re- one of the mentors I had, and it was so interesting how it kind of aligned with Joseph Campbell's um, hero's journey. Um, this older woman that was a therapist in the court ca- court system came into my life just by chance, and but and for about five years we would get together and have lunch and just we're friends. And it was I always say the difference 
um, with any other friendship is that I could call one friend and say, oh my gosh, listen to what my brother said. And they, this friend would say, well, let's go beat his face in. But I would call her and she would say, well, that was his inability to recognize nuance and it triggered this in you. And so she kind of um, began to untangle me. And as I started realizing the process was happening and I was starting to learn more truth, I would ask her questions. And I remember saying, all of these things are obvious, clear, right and wrong and like mean or neglectful or whatever. If I present them and argue them or try to resolve them, I'm met with a brick wall or like backlash and it's horrible. It makes it worse. Why cannot any of them look at the truth? And I remember she said they can't look at the shame, whether it's a narcissist or somebody traumatized or deep in addiction for whatever reason and they've mistreated or neglected you they don't have an ability. She said, I don't know if it's because they won't or they can't, but they, they just don't look at the shame. They're not able to. Well said. Uh, one of the books that really reinforces what you just said, uh, and you may have already read it by John Bradshaw, yes. Shaw, Healing the Shame That Binds You. Yes, yes. Um, right. So yeah, that, that, there's different levels. Of, based on my, my reading, there's different levels of shame. So, you know, my mother you know, was raised to be ashamed of being deaf. And, you know, she happened to have been gorgeous. I mean, she actually was a part-time model for for a little while. So she was, she was worshipped for her looks and ashamed for, for her physical challenge. And back then they called it a handicap. Um, so it, she couldn't tolerate uh, that shame. And she was raised not to tolerate that shame and she was also spoiled because of her handicap and you know very pretty very cute kid so she was spoiled so it was all you know um to quote carol mcbride she's always been the sun and everyone else is a planet um dr cal Mc, yeah dr cal mcbride wrote the book will i ever be free of you if you have a narcissistic mother run to the computer and buy it um it will bring a lot of clarity but yes so to describe her her as the sun and everyone else as the planet, you know, being a planet uh, really just got old for me. And um, it was exhausting. Um, and once I realized on my healing journey that that's what it is, I didn't have to be a slave. Uh, you know, she likes to cause drama. She likes to cause chaos. Um, she's trapped in her own misery, um, caused by her own family. And she, I let her wallow in it, but I do the right thing. She actually, you know, they have a nice relationship with my children because, um, I love my children more than I despise my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and that, you know, um, and I, I feel, uh, sort of a, I'm going to use, I don't know how to say it, maturity and grace by allowing them to have a relationship while maintaining my distance from the chaos. Right. And I think when I hear, particularly my friends complain about their mothers favoring their sisters and this and that and all the things that are, you know, very similar to what my parents did. And I'm like, oh, you poor thing, you're still in it. Yeah. <laughs> you're still in it. You know, it's a long life, you know. It is yeah. a long, slow grind. <laughs> It is a long life if you're trapped in that. So, but so yeah, they we no matter what she does, you know, I have gone uh, the route of gray rock. If you're familiar, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with gray. Yeah. So um, I don't react. I don't give her any 
reaction to play with because that's what it, a narcissist likes. They like a reaction. It's a toy for them to play with. Um, and it's a way for their, you know, it's a tactic they use to hide from their shame. Because um, if they're manipulating someone else and face themselves, chaos is a great way to not have to sit down and deal with yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, right. So by creating drama, I'm glad you said that drama and chaos, um, they can take the attention off them. For me, as a severely codependent, um, by always pushing myself to achieve something, to accomplish something, to, to save somebody, um, to, you know, exhaust myself to prove myself worth was also a way to not deal with my own shame. Mm -hmm. It's just two different ways of dealing with terrible shame. Yeah, that's right. And like emptiness uh, and always trying and, to like force yeah. connection or get someone to get it. Or I was always trying to get someone to understand what I'd been through or without even telling them, but just kind of get my motives. Or, you know, if you were close to me, I needed desperately for you to get me. And if you pretended to get me, you could run me ragged. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. How, you know, how easily we are fooled when we're wearing the, was the wrong lenses. Right. And, and how easily we fool ourselves. Right. I like the gray rock concept as well. That's where you yeah. basically just kind of blend in. Um, it, whether it's a narcissist, cause that term gets thrown around an awful lot as well. I don't know if you've heard of high conflict personality and a lot of us deal with, I've dealt with coworkers like that. Um, I have a friend who deals with her husband's ex-wife is nonstop, pounce on anything and cause splits with everyone around them. They can't be introduced to a coach or a teacher without knowing something's been said about them. And that high conflict chaos tornado, I mean, it's almost like you have to retrain yourself how to walk past a really vibrant, robust hornet's nest. Absolutely. And it's what it, it takes work. And, and I go so back exhausting. to that. It is so exhausting to be around that. The healing journey is not linear. You know, if, if, if it was easy, everybody would heal. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's more familiar and yet, you know, I have one of my podcasts, I just called it Comfortably Miserable. It is more familiar and comfortable and miserable to stay the same. That's right. And that's why most people do it. I just listened to Joe Rogan who was saying... Yeah. It is hard work, whether it's diet or psychological, to work on yourself and to transform things that need to improve. It is hard work, and it's daily. I mean, the hardest work, the heavy lifting is really in the yeah. day, and then it's maintenance, but it's hard. But what, what happened is, you know, and I, I sort of going to tap into, you know, cultural norms. If you, you know, the message, if you lose weight, you will be happy. If you buy a Lincoln Navigator, you're going to feel just like Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> if you, you know, if, you know, you do this, if you do that, if you buy this, you know, with the whole reinforcement, you know, external reinforcement is all marketing. And so we buy into it. So if you're already living, you know, in an externally based, you know, behavior cycle like I did, then yeah, you're going to, go on that diet, you're gonna buy that pill, you're, you're gonna do all that, you're gonna go gamble, you're gonna, whatever it is, you're gonna do all that. So to feel better and to chase happy, and it never works. No, um, it but when you're raised, when you're taught at six months old that that's what you need, and then reinforced by um, advertising, um, 
and cultural expectations, it's very hard to overcome all of that. Right. But it's possible and it's... Yes, it is. And, you know, just like um, you talked about rock bottom, I definitely, I probably had a few rock bottoms, but I definitely the one that launched me into healing. There's no one size fits all. It looks different for everyone. We don't know what's going to make someone get it or have an aha moment. We just don't know. So just like all of that's different for everyone, I have called my healing process patchwork because it's had some dialectical behavioral therapy and support rooms and reading and journaling and writing and, you know, running, things like that. I've just kind of customized it to myself to include faith, but not a faith that is so hateful and heavy and taxing as the dogma I come from. That said, what would you say are the biggest um, structural bones of your recovery process? So a great question. Um, I love that you said patchwork. I see mine as a platform, not a ladder, because a ladder goes straight up, but almost like a platform where, you know, you're hopping from different aspects of healing and, and ideas. Um, I mean, you re- if you, you know, um, I look at all the books I've read, they've tackled the same subject, but in completely different ways. So that's why I like the platform concept. You know, I, I now understand what childhood neglect, emotional neglect is, CEN. I now know what that is, and I know how, what I went through, and I know how it affected me. I now know, you know, what toxic shame does to you um, and what, how it affected me and how I've healed from it. I know how having a narcissistic mother um, what that does um, and how um, that affected me and how I healed from it. I can keep going. I, I now don't understand that my stepfather had antisocial personality disorder. Um, and um, he's, a, he's almost worse than, you know, my mother. But, you know, again, but knowing those things, putting a label to the emptiness, to the pain, to the trauma is the first step in healing. Because not knowing why, you can't fix it if you don't know why. Right. Um, and knowing why, know, knowing that you, first thing is, is staying the same an option isn't an option. Not if you're missing. If it's an option, stop listening to me right now. If you <laughs> think that that's a great option, um, I'm wasting your time. But if you say, no, I don't want to stay the same. I want things, I want to feel different. I want to be different. Well, then you've got to label you got to find out why because you can't fit. I don't think you can solve a problem without knowing why you have the, what the problem is and why you have it. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's why I like the platform concept. I love your patchwork because it's all different patterns and materials, just like there's all different ways you can be emotionally abused and neglected. Right. And there's a million different ways that that affects you. And it's not just one way of healing or one thing to heal. It's, Correct. It's like a mosaic or a tapestry or whatever you want to compare it to. There's a lot of pieces that play in. And I believe for me personally, introspection is where it starts. Because until you can take a look at yourself and your part in it and what it's driven you to do, you're going to be look, reaching out and you'll become a part of that cycle of blame and shame. And that leads you to just hate the process you've come from. And I think that kind of delays healing. It's, it's, it's so true. And I accept my imperfections and I accept the mistakes um, I make now. Um, Part of the reason is 
the mistakes I make are now due to maybe a lack of, you know, experience and not out of ignorance. Right. You know, I look at the career mistakes I made, you know, for years, um, and it was cut out of being blind, totally asleep, unconscious, angry, sad, in denial. And that's where, why, you know, there's still a little bit, I totally admit it, there's still a little bit of, you know, shame associated with how could I have been so blind? How could I have been so foolish? How could I have operated that way? for so long and but then I said okay you know you got to forgive yourself you got it you got to, because you know hating yourself and beating yourself up which I used to do for not having the wisdom back then that I do now doesn't really accomplish anything it doesn't and you you don't just forgive yourself. I think you have to forgive the timeline. We hear people come into the rooms yeah. all the time and rooms are kind of like group therapy, support rooms, whatever. And once they start having some momentum and regaining strength and clarity, almost all of them will say, where was this 20 years ago? I wish I would have had this before I chose this marriage or divorce or you know, yeah. hurt myself this way or that way. If you, if you would have been ready, you would have been ready. It came about when, you know, it's when it was supposed to come about. There's nothing you can do to go back and wake yourself up. But everybody goes to that process of, oh, my goodness, look how dark and foolish, ignorant, whatever. Look at what I put up with. Look at how long I stayed in that friendship or family connection or job or whatever. Really, when, you know, some people never wake up. I think once you start to experience more healing, you're just grateful to have woken up. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm more there now than I ever was, but I, I, I feel like I should be straight with, you know, with the yeah. listeners and that there are times that I think, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't I have been smarter then? And then, all right, a few minutes goes by, you just move past it. But I used to wallow in that thought process. Right. And this negative loop for days, weeks, hours, you know, and, and the high functioning anxiety and high functioning depression, I, I was easily distracted by good things. You know, I, we would go, you know, on trips with other families or, you know, my husband's family, whatever. And th- those were fun moments. They were, they, I didn't, but what happens was it, those are temporary. I call the, I say, you know, and I forgive me, you know, please let me know if you don't like this analogy. I used to think, you know, you know, I used to do long distance cycling and running road races and sprint triathlons, and I had to come in the this you know place first and blah blah blah. You know, those were that was like a drug to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I saw these external tangible accomplishments. You know, that promotion, that raise, that landing, that big client, all, all that. But it's short lived, much like a drug fix. Are you okay with that analogy? Oh, yeah. And it, it reminds me of another one that I'd heard yeah. somebody who was recovering from heroin say, you know, when you're on the freeway and it's that torrential raining storm and you go under a bridge and it gets quiet. She said, heroin was my bridge. And I think that kind of parlays into whatever we're using to stop the bleeding and get us off the floor. Yeah. Something is what that's a great analogy. And yeah. Yes, and there's that's- the, those vacations, your kids' soccer games, I, you know, work, whatever the case may be, you have those bridge moments where it gets quiet, but then you're right back into your storm. And it's that correct. Yes. Great analogy. My God, wait, I'm taking another note. <laughs> <laughs> I love the rooms. I've learned so much and you just don't forget it. And it rises up within you at the best yeah. times. 
Yes, that's true. And, you know, there's always more clarity to gain. There's always better way. To me, I, I love coming up with new ways to share what it was like and now what it is like. And I, I, I try to be as candid as possible so somebody can absorb it, you know, um, so they can apply it. Uh, you know, I, I try not, you know, that's sometimes why I swear is like, you know, so they, so it's like, okay, I, I, I get this. I'm in, a, I'm in a terrible haze and I've come from a terrible family and I'm in a terrible marriage. But for that moment, for that one sentence, that one podcast, that, you know, one paragraph, it, it hits them. Right, right. Which brings me to my question. I'm very curious how things are with your family members now. Do you have, they abbreviate it like LC, NC. Do you have low contact, no contact? And what have been the reactions to not only your recovery process, which is a time of kind of secluding yourself or however it went about, um, as well as your open about it, your openness about all of it now? What's, what is everything like now? Yeah, great question. So I'm at Lone Contact. Um, low contact? Low contact, yeah. So I'm very lucky, you know, in comparison to a lot of other people who are from toxic families in that they all live in another state now. That wasn't always the case, but they do now. And uh, that's been very healthy for me. And um, I see them, you know, a few times a year, never for more than a day or two. That's my tolerance. Um, I text them regularly. I keep them updated on, on children. I send them, you know, holiday gifts or, you know, birthday gifts, Santa, whatever it is, I always do. And that's enough for me. Um, and if they don't like it, that's their problem, not mine. Right. They created this by choosing not to wake up. Um, so they chose not to wake up. I did. Um, I don't have, I don't have to continue to expose myself to that just because we're blood related. Right. Um, there's no rule um, that says that um, other than honor thy mother and father, um, which is one of my pet peeve statements. Well, somebody um, told me to reframe that in a way that my life is an honor. That doesn't mean I'm your punching bag. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, um, I, um, I'm good, you know, um, because of that, if they live near me, I, I would definitely be more challenging. I would definitely have a lot more to, uh, complain about. <laughs> but, well, I was actually, I had a girlfriend over the other day and we were talking about, I live in the same town still for this, um, for now, um, as some of my family members and she actually lives next door wow. to her toxic parents next door. So I was like, Oh my oh. God, you know, you lament how, and I could never. And she's like, no, it's really easy when you're self-contained that I know how to make peace. I know how to shut the door. I know how to not answer the door. I mean, she's just become very healthy with creating a garden of peace around her life. And that's fantastic considering yes. how much she has to continue to build that fence. They're right there. Right. <laughs> you know, so kudos to her. Wow. That's incredible. Um, they each their so, own. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I could have been successful. You know, the timing was interesting. You know, just as I was in the middle of my healing journey, you know, they all just coincidentally, you know, relocated and, um, it sort of definitely sped up my healing process. Right. Yeah. 
So, uh, but what uh, you need right in the middle of that. Grace. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and I didn't ask for it. You know, the universe gave it to me. <laughs> right. Well, um, we definitely like to kind of wrap things up with hope. So I was wondering if, there, if you might have any thoughts, I'll rephrase um, what I normally ask. For those yep. who are presently facing the struggle or just now entering that tunnel of chaos and needing to find their own patchwork process or platform of recovery, what thoughts, suggestions do you have for them? I would say listen and read as much as you can because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, and that makes you want to learn more. And depersonalizing toxic family patterns by recognizing them for what they are, patterns that didn't start with you, is huge into really being happy and content and fulfilled in your life because you won't be influenced by all those bad behaviors and those distorted perspectives that have been plagued you for so long. That's really why you're unhappy. That's really why you're empty. That's really why you're sad. That's really why, you know, you can't sleep. That's all that. It really all stems from a top, I think a, majority of, un, of unhappiness and, and misery stems from a toxic childhood. Right. And if you understand that your reaction to a toxic, toxic childhood and continuing those toxic patterns is really what the problem is, then you can start looking at yourself in a whole new way that, oh, I am not what has happened to me. I am not defined by how I was treated. And if no, that's not defined by what you're told, because a lot of times in right. toxic fam families, we're given labels. You yep. are bad. You are, yep. the, you are a hard child. You are crazy. You are rebellious. When in fact, you might just be reacting to misery and things that should not be. That's right. And, and we, again, when we go to cultural norms and cultural expectations, honor thy mother and father, you know, they must be right. Yeah. <laughs> They're the mother and the father. They must be, I must be difficult. Right. I, I was listening to a friend of mine talk about, you know, her mother favors her sister. Um, and, and, but basically the way I've interpreted it is, her mother treats her poorly because she's very capable and she married a good man. She has this great life. Her sister did the opposite. And so the sister gets everything and she gets nothing and she's done everything right. And she's miserable about it. Oh. it, it eats away at her. And I, I feel so badly, but I can't, I don't say anything because well, she's personalizing it. She's personal, right, exactly. Like, it's she's her self-esteem, her mental state of mind, everything about how she views each day and how she views herself is t tied directly to her mother's constant rejection. Wow. And it's that's the type of thing that I really hope my podcast and my book yes. stop. Right. That um, is that. 
Right. That's what I, so that's what you get stuck on and paralyzed by. I love the stuck stops here because it's what cripples you and you can't move beyond. It can keep you at a certain age even. It can keep you stuck in a certain behavioral pattern, relationship pattern, and really stop and heal. And that's how you move forward. I mean, if you are miserable with yourself and miserable around your family, it's a dog chasing its tail. It's that hamster wheel. You're running in place, but you're not going anywhere. Um, and it would be nice for to create a generation of people who are seen, treated well from, from infancy and that they don't have to spend their whole adult life recovering from a shitty childhood. That's what we nice. That's what we, I want to do. Because if you raise, you know, if, if the poison of toxic family gets passed on, well, so does the, you know, the sweet, you know, smell of healing and, and, and normalcy and, and healthy emotions. That gets passed on too. Right. So the next generation doesn't have to suffer. That's what, I, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. It's a big, tall order, though. <laughs> One of my um, friends and mentors from the rooms always says, family is my favorite F word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've learned so much about um, some of those toxic patterns and how it's okay to set up strategies for yourself. Like you said, you give a certain amount of time and in doses. Um, I had another friend say, he's a family counselor, that even in his own family, when it's holidays, he gives himself a three-hour limit. And that's generous. For some people, can't do three hours. You have to do whatever you're okay with. The woman that was um, the therapist that I became friends with always had a phrase that she said to me when things were chaotic. And I was looking for a decision to find my way out. You know, this person would explode on me or I would have this or that problem. And she, I would say, I'm not, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And she would always say, you need to do whatever it takes to be okay, to feel safe, and to have peace over and over and over. And I'd get so frustrated because that wasn't clear, but it calmed me down enough that I would start kind of analyzing that. She would even text it to me sometimes or, you know, write it into a card, whatever it takes to be okay, to feel safe and to have peace. So if that means three hours with your family, if that means being out of state, if that means small doses, whatever that means for you, that's okay. You are allowed to make that decision. And I think when we're entering that tunnel of chaos, we don't realize we are separate and okay to start to make those decisions for ourselves. Absolutely. And actually, you brought up a really good point, to feel safe and to feel okay. Right. One of the things, if you don't mind, I want to elaborate on on one thing. You can cut me off if I'm babbling too much. So one of the things I notice now is I don't mind quiet. I don't mind stillness. I don't, you know, um, that doesn't bother me. I hated being alone with myself before. That's not the case now. And because being alone with yourself when you are battling high functioning anxiety, high functioning depression, um, and severe codependency, um, any, uh, you know, and I can throw out all kinds of, you know, mental health issues, but being alone with yourself is terrible when you're battling them. Yes. And 
what I feel now when I'm alone and it's quiet, I feel great. <laughs> so here's my point is I now know what true contentment and fulfillment feels like. I didn't know that before. So if you never know what that feels like, how would you know that you need only two hours with your family to feel that contentment? Like, how do you know whether, you know, to get to that point? So if you hate being alone with yourself, if you constantly have toxic negative thoughts running through your head, if you have a lot of trouble sleeping, and focusing. If you are finding chronically unhappy, chronically stressed out, chronically sad, any of those things, you're missing that path to quiet and content and fulfilled. And if somebody could, if I could just bottle up the way I am now, because I was not like this before, I was a complete mess. And that way you know what it feels like. Oh, then you can work towards that. But there's no way to bottle it up and show it to people. So that's one thing is to, a little for hope. Any kind of chronic anxiety, chronic stress, chronic depression, chronic sadness, chronic misery, chron any of that. If you have that, think about the situations that are triggering you. Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it, what is it? And then what does it mean for you? You know, if, if your boss criticizes you, your husband, your spouse, whatever, partners criticize you, if your holidays with your parents, are all those make your stomach turn and get you all stressed out, well, what is it about, what is it triggering with you, in, within you? So if you figure out what's trigger, triggering you, then you can start to understand why, you know, where's the problem? What's the root of the problem? And we're understanding the root of the problem leads to the why. The why leads to disengagement of, of, of you, know, part, you know, these bad behaviors. And then the quiet, you know, you learn that quiet content time. There's all that negative chatter goes away. It's not quick. It's not easy. But it's worth it. And that's how people will know, oh, this job isn't right for me. Oh, spending two days or three days with my family, you know, over the holidays is terrible for me. Now you can make adjustments so that you're not doing the same thing over and over again just because you're used to it. Does that make sense? Did I say that well? Yeah, that is so good. And I would add one element about um, yeah. and not just the quiet, but I was thinking about the flip side of that is being okay with discomfort and the hot loneliness as some people call it or if somebody's upset with you but you know you're doing the right thing to be okay to feel safe and to have peace being okay to find that contentment and stillness in the midst of somebody being upset because that sometimes does a physical thing within us because we're so enmeshed and codependent absolutely i'm, I'm glad I, i'm glad you brought that up so yes if somebody's if, if somebody is saying that you, you've disappointed me, um, you know, look at what, where, did you really disappoint them? Did you do something wrong? Or did you just take care of yourself and they just don't like it? Right. And that's, um, it's a great point. Yes, um, you are not put on this earth to make everybody happy. 
No, that's the best way to be miserable. That's right. And I learned that the hard way. It took me decades. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Actually, my, um, that mentor woman was in my car with me one time, and I had a family member who was sometimes prone to, he's what I would call a rageaholic. Um, he would yep. ask you for something to do a favor or something, come and visit, whatever. Whatever your answer was, if it wasn't yes and in agreement with him, you were met with vicious backdraft of fire. And, and it was not, you could never just give your answer, whether you were on your deathbed or just didn't want, whatever your reasoning was. If your answer was different than what he was asking, I would be called names and screamed at and hung up on and she happened to be in my car when it happened. And so I started kind of, sometimes I'd argue back just as vicious and go for arteries. But sometimes I'd hang up or go, sometimes I would be bullied yeah. into doing it. I just never handled it right. And I never realized it was a toxic family pattern. I just thought it was a bad day or a bad call. And I just never dealt with it consciously. And I remember she said, why in the world would you ever subject yourself to that? What is wrong with your worth and confidence that you would ever take that call or ever let that happen to you again? I was so astonished that I thought, I am a grown woman. I work in a corporate setting. I'm doing well. I'm, I have a son that I have worked hard enough to put in private school. I am, you know, somewhat reasonable, rational and, rational and intelligent. How is it just dawning on me that something so simple as the fact that I have a choice? I didn't even realize I had a choice. <laughs> well said. Oh my gosh, that was such, and that sounds so stupid, but when you're enmeshed in this family system, it's like a huge net and you don't even realize you can be cut out of it. Awesome. You just reminded me of, of another analogy that sort of builds on what you said. And I, it's definitely not as eloquent as you just said it. So I'm going to apologize in advance. <laughs> it, I look at as toxic people, rageaholics, highly immature, highly um, selfish, high conflict, uh, high conflict, all that. You look at that as if um, I look at that as somebody handing me a bag of dog poop. <laughs> so if you were just sitting at the dinner table and somebody handed you dog poop, you're going to be like, I don't want that. <laughs> that. Why are you giving that to me? That's how I look at rage, selfishness, greed, uh, narcissism, uh, all those bad behaviors of people pointing the finger at you. Yeah. If you looked at it, is every time somebody pointed the finger at you that they were handing you a bag of dog poop, you probably wouldn't take it. <laughs> right. That's how I look at it. So yes, not as eloquent as you, but I'm hoping. <laughs> so I painted a visceral picture of why you don't need to take crap from anybody. That's right. And it's their baggage. It's not yours, but they are glad to unload it on you and weigh you down with it. And until you stop taking it on, it's going to continue. I look at toxic family patterns as holding a backpack filled with bricks and dog poop. Yeah. Now I don't want to go through life with bricks and dog poop on my back. Right. It's uh, cool I don't want it. Yeah, it's gross. So um, and heavy. <laughs> so yes, it's it's a crass example, but again, I like to try to paste, you know, paint a visceral picture, um, and and sometimes go beyond the words of toxic parents. You know, picture what they're giving to you. Picture what they're get they're they're expecting from you. It's not fair. 
Well, yeah, and until you realize that it's wrong and it's sick and it's junk, you yep. might let them argue with you and try to reason your way out of the fact that you just don't have to deal with it. It takes a long time to unlearn it and to realize it does. I just don't have to. I just don't have to deal with this. That's right. Whether it's Absolutely. family or coworker, or high conflict or whatever, I just don't have to deal with your baggage. I just don't. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Doesn't mean I don't think well of you or whatever the case may be. I just can't take your baggage on. And we learn at a very young age to be attuned both, you know, usually negatively to our surroundings. So if it's an unpleasant surrounding, scary surrounding, violent surrounding, emotionally abusive surrounding, we try to find ways to self-soothe um, and develop these toxic coping strategies that end up being very debilitating when we're adults. Right. Um, and that's where, you know, those, ne those negative thought loops and inability to sleep and stress, anxiety, and depression come from is these toxic coping strategies that we were forced to learn at 18 months, two, three, four, five, six, ten that we need to unlearn now so that we can live a life that we were supposed to be and be the kind of people that we were supposed to be before all these, you know, rotten rules were, were placed on us. That's right. Because no one is called to, you're not created to be, you're not born to be a high functioning mess, a high functioning addict, alcoholic, high functioning with despair, depression, misery, and anxiety, self-hatred. We're not called to be any of that. And it's not sustainable. After a while, it's not, it's not really not functional. It's just that we appear to be, but really it does eventually collapse. And if it doesn't, you're going to spend a long life being miserable. So I, it is not sustainable, but I think a lot of people never hit rock bottom the way I did, you know, on, on a couple of occasions. I agree. So it's almost like they're comfortable at that low, you know, that high level of misery, you know, so rock bottom, you, there's no way to go but up. But a lot of people, they don't get to that point. So it's just this constant hum of misery and unhappiness and emptiness that they just think it, that's the way life is. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's right. And it's not. It ain't over yet. Your rock that's right. is coming or hopefully maybe you'll start doing the work before it does and you realize this is just not the fullest life I could have. But then I've heard the expression often, not every acorn is meant to be an oak tree. So they're able oh. to be, but they don't all become that. That's true. They're able, but not, they don't all, but they choose not to. That's You're right. right. Well said. Well said. <laughs> well, that said, if you would please give all of our listeners an overview of your work and let our families know how to find you, get connected to your work, support you, um, develop their own process, listen to yours. Because like I said, I have binged your processes. I'm, I'm sorry, your podcasts <laughs> and just cannot get enough. I can't recommend them enough. So tell us how everyone can get in touch with you and see all you've done. I will be happy to do that, but you have to make me a promise. Sure. That you have come on my podcast. Um, oh, sure. I'd love to. All right. Good. Um, I will definitely follow up with that. So um, the way to reach me is thestuckstopshere.com. Again, thestuckstopshere.com. I'm on uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram. 
Uh, I have an um, I, I probably didn't discuss this, but I write lyrics and um, uh, I co-produced an album um, where I did the lyrics and uh, my friend did all the music and singing and engineering and that's on Spotify. And it's all songs, all lyrics are all devoted to healing oh, wow. um, from toxic family. That's, uh, that's everything. And it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's easy, easily digestible music. You know, it's uh, probably I would call it, you know, soft pop, soft rock. Um, so all what I, the reason how I came up with the album um, is I wrote the lyrics and my friend put music to it. And it's under the stuck stops here as well. Um, and uh, I think sometimes, you know, we read, we watch videos, uh, we sit with a therapist, we go to an AC, you know, an ACA group, we do all that. But I, I'm hoping that the lyrics... You know how you know how a song plays in your head and the lyrics get stuck in your head. Yes, right. My thought is because I love to write and I love words. Is what if a, a healing lyric pops? And, you know, gets stuck in your head, kind of reinforces everything you're doing. So that's what I'm hoping. You know, for you know the music is okay. just to to reinforce and hit your brain in a different way. Um, my podcasts are on iTunes as well as Spotify. The albums on Spotify. I have an Instagram profile, Facebook, um, and I really don't have any time for any more social media than that. <laughs> oh, my book's on Amazon. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, so um, I think uh, the the e-version is like the same price as a Starbucks coffee. <laughs> with with, with a, 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 a vanilla twist thrown in. <laughs> well, I'll definitely send it all out. I've posted your stuff before from my um, recovery writer page on Facebook. That's where I kind of base all of my stuff. But I'll definitely send it out and send this out on all of our platforms. And I just cannot thank you enough because I don't know that there's enough people not only doing the work to heal, but leading others to reaching back in and shining a light to others who may be in the same type of pit or misery or silent hum of dysfunction and don't even realize that they can do the work. And it doesn't even really take that long. You don't have to spend as many years healing as you did in your discomfort or dysfunction. So I just admire you so much. You're a hero of mine in the work and I cannot thank you enough for coming on. So everyone check Tammy out, follow her work. I'll post it, email her, stalk her like I do online as far as her work goes, because <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it will bring you through to the other side, which Hopefully, that's all of our goal. Thank you, Annie. It's a privilege to have been a guest, and I can't wait to have you on mine. And thank you for, you know, enjoying my work. It means a lot. Well, I agree. Thanks so much. Can't wait to collab, and you are amazing. Bye-bye, everyone. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found in Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Unhooked.